senior pastor has been doing uh, a marriage series. And again, usually I don't get to intrude or even touch whatever series he's doing. When he leaves for the week and then I fill in, I just, you know, have to find some sort of standalone thing to do. Um, I'm exercising a little spiritual rebellion here, and I'm going to touch his series. <laughs> no, it's just kidding. This, this will not impinge or not affect what he does. This is not in competition or a conflict with anything that he has already said or will say. Hopefully, all of this is complimentary, and it just sort of gives us a broader perspective, something more to chew on when we talk about uh, marriage uh, the role and the purpose and the function that it plays in God's creation. Um, some of this, the first half of this at least, uh, were things that we discussed in our marriage seminar that we just had uh, last weekend. So if you happen to be there for that, the first half, I'm sure, from your notes, you laminated them, you took them home and everything, and you, you know the first part of this message outline, you've got it cold. All right, That's not an excuse to doze off or to sleep but rather to reinforce in your mind some of the things that we discussed. The second half were, um, of the sermon outline were not things that we discussed. This is uh, just upon further reading and reflecting some other things that are, um, that are worth mentioning, especially in terms of the enduring significance of marriage. Having said that, let me, let me, give, let me make two statements up front because there's... Um, Whenever, whenever a church does a series, a, a marriage series or f- parenting or something like that, you always uh, hopefully recognize the fact that not everyone in the congregation is married, or if you're doing a parenting seminar, not everyone in the congregation is a, is a parent, and there are you know, a variety of reasons for that. So let me try to touch on maybe two different groups um, of people here. One, if you're here and you are single, either by choice or whether by choice or not, all right, there can be sometimes a tendency to feel like because of the honor and respect that the church gives to marriage, because of the, um, the emphasis that we place on it, there can be a tendency or temptation to feel like, well, until I get married, I'm just somehow a step below right? I'm, I'm not there. I'm not complete. I'm not where I should be. If we had more time, we could delve into this. But let me tell you, that is simply not true. Marriage in Scripture is not pictured as the means by which you are made a whole person. Case in point, Jesus was single, He did not marry, and he was not deficient. He did not lack a true, full, satisfying identity. He was more human even than what we are, and yet he was single. And then you could mention guys like Paul and and so on. So if you're single, anything that's said here is not to make you feel like you're a second class or like you have not measured up and you still have to aspire to reach your God-given destiny. I don't know what God has in store for you. Singleness may be, may be it, and that is a good and great thing. Second group of people are to talk to those people who um, perhaps are in marriages that are uh, less than ideal 
we can say it that way, or whose marriages have uh, been ruptured for any number of reasons and perhaps have led to uh, the breakdown of that marriage and divorce. And the challenge uh, so often when it comes to uh, a marriage emphasis in the church is that the ideal of marriage as it's presented in the scripture is held up in such a way that rather than finding hope or encouragement or rather uh, instead of being built up or edified, you actually feel worse or, or guilty because, well, my marriage doesn't look like that, what I hear them talking about or this is not my experience, or that was not my experience. The first thing that I would say is to be mindful of the fact that really, truth be told, no one's marriage meets the picture that you see in Scripture. You, you get that, right? What we have in Scripture is the ideal, and we strive for that unapologetically, we want our lives, our marriages together to look more and more like what marriage was intended to be, but no one, no one, no one has a marriage that meets the standard or the model that you see in Scripture. It's just not true. And second, if you happen to be in a marriage where these sorts of things look um, more and more unlikely, in, in other words, your marriage just seems so far removed from the ideal, it doesn't even look like we're moving in that direction. If anything, we may be regressing. Well, the, the, the message of faith in Jesus Christ is, one, that Christ is able to raise from the dead, even marriages, but two, even if he doesn't, his grace is sufficient. And you can still find, even in a marriage that is shot through with problems and dysfunction, because your identity ultimately is not in marriage but is in Christ, you can still find joy and happiness. You can know the pleasure and the satisfaction of your father resting upon you even though your marriage does not look anything like what it looks like in Scripture. So I just, I just say that just because I, I felt compelled to make those statements up front just so that as we go through the Word that none of what we're said here in any way um, is construed to be, um, I don't know, unnecessarily condemning or demoralizing. All right? Jesus is the focus, even in marriage even apart from marriage. Having said that, turn with me in Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to pick up at verse 15. And I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle 
and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into, uh, fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, and you want to read this with great enthusiasm and excitement, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, give us understanding now as we go to your word to see what it is that you have done in the institution of marriage, not only for our good, but for the proclamation of the gospel in which we place our hope. Help us to exalt Jesus Christ through the preaching and reading and meditating on your word. And it's through his name that we pray. Amen. In the beginning, marriage starts in Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, you have a man and his bride and work. In the beginning, this is number one in your notes... Marriage was created in the context of meaningful work. In the beginning, marriage was created in the context of meaningful work. I'm going to start at 2.18, which is a verse that almost everyone is familiar with if you spent any time in the church or spent any time in the church when marriage is being discussed. God looks at the man and he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Nine times out of ten... When that verse is read or when it's commented upon, it's communicated uh, in some sort of way like this, that what God did, he looked and he saw Adam and he saw that there was not another person for Adam to have a relationship with. And so because Adam was alone, God created a woman for him to have fellowship with, and for him to have a companion, and for him to have a soulmate. That's the aloneness that God is talking about, and that's what's not good. The difficulty with that, though, is that doesn't seem to be the way that the story is unfolding as you read Genesis 1 and 2. Let me pause right here. If the issue... If the problem with Adam being alone was the fact that he needed another person, if he needed a relationship, it's not entirely clear why it should be one woman that would solve that problem. Why not multiple women or multiple people? Why not just create an instant community for him to have fellowship with? Problem solved. Furthermore, to say that the problem is that Adam is relationally isolated and alone. He needs a soulmate. And then for God to say, I will make a helper suitable for him, that's, that's odd terminology to use if the emphasis is on 
a soul-binding relationship, right? You would expect it to be something like, it's not good for Adam to be alone, relationally, therefore I will make a friend for him, or I will make a companion for him, or I will make a lover for him. But that's not what God says. Twice in the text we're told, in verse 18, and then later after Adam is naming the animals, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So what is it that Adam needs that he doesn't have in his aloneness that God is solving or providing when he says that I'm going to create a helper? If you go back to 128, which sort of gives part of the broad overview of creation, God says, let us make man in our image. And so he creates man and woman, male and female, and what does he tell them in 128? Be fruitful and multiply, have dominion, rule over. He he tells them to do something. Do you see that? Okay, I've created you two. Now you two get to it. Here's what you need to do. I've you got a job to do. When you get to Genesis 2, and when you're taking a closer look at the creation events, you find out that the man and the woman were not created simultaneously, but there was the man who was created first, and then the woman. And it was in between the creation of the man and the woman, when Adam is on his own, that the Lord says, it's not good for the man to be alone, I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now, go back in your Bible to 2.5. Genesis 2.5, notice how this is playing out. In 128, God creates man and woman, and He gives them work. In 2.5, we see the same thing happening again when the author says, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Creation needs someone to work it. And then, when Adam is created, when a man is created, God says, I'm putting you in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it, 215. You you have a job to do in this garden. And then the Lord steps back, and so that we all know, says it's not good for the man to be alone. And in the context... It's not good for Adam to be alone because of the job that God has assigned him. It is too big for Adam to do alone. That's why he needs a helper. I will make a helper suitable for him. I will make a helper that will enable him to do the work that he's been given to do in my creation. So, in Genesis 1 and 2, man and woman are put together... In this institution that we recognize and call marriage, he places them together to work for him in his creation to cultivate, to develop, to expand this little Garden of Eden site to push the boundaries out further and further so that this paradise spreads throughout the earth. That's a far different picture at the outset than the picture of marriage that we often get today, right? Which is the two star-crossed lovers staring longingly into one another's eyes late into the night, whispering sweet nothings in in each other's ears, needing nothing else in life except for their beloved. 
That's not what marriage was given for in creation. Marriage was given for something actually much bigger than that. It's not that there can't be the longing glances, and it's not that you can't whisper sweet nothings, and it's not that you can't be satisfied or desirous of your spouse, but it's recognizing that within the bigger picture, the context of Genesis 1 and 2, the reason that God brings together a man and a wife is so that they can serve Him in His creation. In other words, marriage ultimately is not even about you and or your mate. It's about your Creator and King. It's about how your marriage will be used to advance His kingdom, to push back the boundaries of chaos and disorder, to spread life and hope and fruitfulness in the midst of His creation. Some of you right now are thinking, thanks, Merritt. My spouse was already as unromantic as could be. You've now validated their romantic deficiencies by making work all about toil or making marriage all about toil. Not the case. In the beginning, not only was marriage created in the context of meaningful work, number two, a working marriage displayed the goodness of the Creator. Two points, and we could, we could give others, but two points to make here. First, in 128, when we're told that God creates man and woman, and He sets them about this big, gigantic task, we pass over and don't think much about it, but in 128, do you notice how 128 reads? It says, and God blessed them and said, and then you get a list of commands. It is a good thing that marriage is given for work because in the command to fulfill the purpose for marriage comes God's blessing. God's blessing comes in the form of a command, and if we were to be very specific, the blessing comes in a command to work. In other words, one of the key observations to make is that the blessing that God intends to give in marriage is not the blessing that comes with locking yourself away in your home and shutting out the world. So that it's all about you and your wife or you and your husband. Rather, the blessing of God and enjoying the pleasure of God comes when man and wife together turn outward and look at the world around them and say, how would God use us to do meaningful work in His creation? That is something that is bigger than any two people and something that gives them a purpose and a sense of calling that far exceeds 
their limited existence. God does not give marriage within a command or a call to work so as to make life burdensome. The very fact that God commands man and woman to work together in marriage is itself a basis for God's blessing. By the way, this is the, this is the way God's commands work all through Scripture, right? We, because we're bent in on ourselves, because we're selfish, because we want to rule, we want to reign, we want to set the agenda, we see anything that is spoken over us, any sort of outside authority that would dictate the way that we we see that as burdensome and restrictive. Whereas in Scripture, over and over again, just like in 128, the fact that God gives a command and says, do this, is actually a good thing because in doing the command, God's people find joy and meaning and satisfaction and contentment. Number two, a working marriage also shows the goodness of the Creator, not just in the way that God gives a blessing in the form of a command, He blesses so that people can work, but two, when He gives the man his partner, his wife, his, the woman, the man's partner becomes an intimate companion. See, it's not that God creates marriage and says, I have a job for you two to do. Now grit your teeth, bear it, do it. But that He, he creates marriage, says, I've given you two work to do, And again, out of the sheer goodness of God, He gives the man the type of partner, not just that he can work with and accomplish things, but the kind of partner that he can work with and accomplish things and do so with joy and delight. Adam sees this new co-worker, if we want to use that kind of language, and he says, oh, yes, this is the kind of co-worker that I need to make this work enjoyable. Oh, this is going to be good. And so God puts them in His creation, and He sets them about doing meaningful work. Man, woman, husband, wife, you've got a job to do. You need to get to it. You need to be fruitful and multiply, i.e., parentheses, get to the kids, have children. As you are having children and as you are multiplying, by the way, those other little image bearers that come are also being invited into God's creation to serve Him and to work. You're going to train them to do that. As you're multiplying and making more image bearers to serve their Creator in His kingdom, you're to have dominion over the earth. You're to rule. You are going to be a king and queen in my creation, with my delegated authority given to you, and I'm giving all of this to you for you to be able to enjoy. That's a a good scenario. The difficulty, of course, comes in 
just one chapter later in Genesis 3. Where after God has taken a man and woman and put them together to do meaningful work, fruitful labor in his kingdom, and to do it in such a way that they not only enjoy the work, but they enjoy one another together as they're doing the work, unhindered, with the capacity to do exactly what they've been called to do, Genesis 3. Sin comes into the picture, and what was originally a good, beautiful, fruitful, unhindered assignment becomes broken and marred with dysfunction. So the woman now, rather than loving and delighting in her husband, is going to desire to overtake him. She will not like, there will be something in her that recoils, if you will, at the fact that she's partnered with this Neanderthal. And the so-called Neanderthal, who once had a partner for him to take joy in and delight in is going to see some of that hostility, and at the same time, he's going to try to assert his role as the man. He's going to try to rule over her. And so now, what had initially been kick-started in harmony, in mutual love, meaningful service and delight is going to be characterized by this constant friction. In other words, just like all of creation is under a curse and needs to be redeemed, even marriage is under a curse and needs to be redeemed. That's why, by the way, that even though we get such a lofty view of marriage in Genesis 1 and 2, and we get a lofty view of marriage in passages like Ephesians 5, husbands and wives and the mystery of Christ and His church, that's why our marriages don't look like the ideal. Because sinners are striving to reach something that is beyond themselves. Because we are born into sin, we do not have the capacity. No man, no woman has the capacity to do in marriage what we see depicted in Genesis 1 and 2. And no man and no woman in marriage has the ability to do what we see depicted in Ephesians 5. You can't do it on your own. What you can do... is abide in Christ. So that the power and the strength of Christ renewing and regenerating your heart and mind gives you the kind of mind and heart that returns you back to what your ultimate purpose and your ultimate calling is, but you will only find it in Christ. And even then, it will be a slow, painful process. You'll have good days, but the good days can seem very fleeting. 
when you're bearing the weight and the burden of so much of the rest of the world that's laboring under the curse. All that being said, the point to take away here is that when God puts us together as husband and wife, He does so for good reasons. He brings us together. He joins us together so that we can serve Him, not so that we can satisfy ourselves. This is not a divine excuse for narcissism. This is not, marriage is not a cover for focusing on self-fulfillment. It's much bigger than that. And it's a good thing that it is because if your marriage is measured by the extent of your identity or how your spouse is serving or relating to you, you, your marriage will not bear up under that weight because marriage is carrying much more than that and you will not be able to lift that burden. But there's also a way in which marriage, in the way that God designed it, even from the beginning, and even after the fall, even after sin comes into the world and makes this a labor and makes this something that we have to work at. Marriage is for work, but marriage itself requires work. Right? You see how, see how that works? A lot of works in there. Marriage itself is given as a way to preach or whisper the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Let me show you one way. This is not the only way. Let me show you one way that that happens. Turning your Bibles from Genesis, go to Psalm 8. And as you're turning to Psalm 8, we want to stress again, what did God put the man and the woman in creation to do? Oh, my word. Okay, good. I, man, I was starting to break out into a sweat. Like, has anything gotten across? Yeah, to work, all right? And the work is characterized in places like 128 as being fruitful and multiplying, ruling over the creation, having dominion, exercising authority. Psalm 8, David is writing, and he's marveling over God's work in creation and the created order. Skip down to verse 3, Psalm 8, verse 3. David says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You hear that king language? You crown him with glory and majesty, kingly language there. Verse 6, you make him to rule over, there it is again, kingly language. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all of the animals of the field, all the birds of the sky, everything that passes through the sea. All right? Here's... Simple observation before we move to, to another passage very quickly. Notice that even after the fall in Genesis 3, David, thousands of years later, is looking on what God has done in creation, and what does David say man's unique 
calling is in life, in this creation? What does he say? To rule and to reign. Just like God said in 128, I'm giving you dominion, I'm giving you authority. Use it, exercise it. You are going to be my king and queen in this creation, enacting my will. David says, even after sin comes in and mars that, distorts it, that's still the call that God has placed on humanity. Hebrews 2. See, the problem is not that sin negates God's design and His command to be fruitful and multiply. It does not negate the command to rule and reign and have dominion over the creation. Because David is still talking about in Psalm 8, it's obvious that that is still God's will. The problem, though, is... How is it ever going to be done the way that God intended it to be done when the people who are charged with doing it are broken, mixed up people? God has not changed His plan. It's still the same design. The difficulty or the problem is is that now the people who are being called to do it don't have the capacity to do it. Hebrews 2. Skip down to verse 5. The author of Hebrews says... For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him... Who is the him? For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Clear as mud, right? Here's the point. We'll do this very quickly. In Hebrews 1 and leading into 2, the focus is on the supremacy of God the Son, the supremacy of Christ. In Hebrews 2, the author is branching out and he's saying, in light of how majestic and great and exalted this Son is, it is unbelievably true that this exalted, majestic ruler is also one of us. So he takes Psalm 8 which is a remark, David's comment, on how God called man to rule and to reign in his creation. And Hebrews says, now, finally, God's call, God's original design is being perfected and fulfilled. How is it being perfected and fulfilled? Are are you ruling and reigning over creation perfectly in the way that the Father desires or intends? No. No. Who is? Yeah, there is one man, but stress that, man, 
who is answering that call and fulfilling it, and it is the man, Jesus Christ. So that here again, we go from Genesis, the original call, to serve, to be fruitful, to rule and to reign over creation. Sin mars that, makes it difficult, makes it impossible for us to do as fallen image bearers, as broken people. David is still in Psalm 8 saying, but this is what God had designed all along, and this is what he's calling us to. But it's not until the time that Jesus Christ comes and shows himself to be the perfect man, Paul will say, by the way, the second Adam, that we finally see Genesis 1 and 2 being fulfilled. Do you see that? Okay, now here's the thing. We have, yeah, sorry, I haven't even been following my, my outline. I apologize for that. So in the end, the second Adam, that is Christ, will fulfill the Creator's call. What's, what's missing, if we can use that sort of language? What's missing, though? Somebody said it. The bride, right? God creates man places him in the creation and says, rule and have dominion, be fruitful and multiply. You have my blessing. And then he brings a woman, he brings the wife to join together with the man to do that work in the creation in a way that would be infinitely or eternally satisfying and ultimately would point to the glory of God, the creator, Jesus takes up the role of the second Adam. Where's the bride for the second Adam? Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, let's start at verse 5. I'm going to read 5 and 6. A voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, that is Jesus Christ, the Almighty reigns. And then what happens in the very next verse, verse 7? Marriage. It follows the exact same pattern. The man is placed as a king to rule in the midst of God's creation, to honor and glorify Him, to perfectly obey and we fail to do that. But our marriages are still being used in such a way that God intends for them to be answering the call to serve and to rule and have dominion, to be fruitful and multiply, to be advancing his kingdom. But it's not until the person and work of Christ that we find the reality of that breaking into this sin-cursed world. And even when we get to the end in Revelation 19, what we see is, is that this new man, this second Adam, will also have a bride given to him who will rule and reign with him. 
So number two, the second Adam will rule with his bride over a new creation. This is what our marriages are supposed to be imaging and projecting. Do you, do you get that? Do you see that? Is it any wonder then that in the New Testament, Paul and some of these other writers are saying, listen, you need to teach young men and young women how to do marriage. You need to tell them, teach them how to love each other. You need to teach them how to do parenting, how to be fruitful and multiply. So that, and Paul will say things like, so that the word of God is not dishonored. Or he'll go to Ephesians 5 and he'll say, husbands and wives, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, respect, honor, submit to your husband. Why? Just because that's a highfalutin philosophy and it's a, it's a better way to go about marriage than anything else? No. Because God, from the very beginning of creation, from the time that he instituted marriage, intended for it to be the vehicle by which he gave a living parable to the lost world, racked by sin and dysfunction, he intended marriage to be the vehicle and the model by which his people are able to say, this is what we're moving towards. We're moving towards a relationship with our King, with our Lord, in which we will live together closely and intimately. No separation, no shame, no embarrassment. We will know Him fully, and He will know us fully, and we will not recoil at that. We will not shy away, but we will be drawn to one another. We will be drawn to our husband our King, our Lord, our Savior. And we will go through all of eternity in a new creation, laboring with our Lord and Savior, our King, as His bride, as His co-heirs, as His co-rulers, and we will be working out the call that God placed on His creation from the very beginning. Husbands, when people look at your marriage and the way that you relate to your wife, do they, do they get a glimpse of that end state that's being described in Revelation 19 and 20? Do they see you loving, leading, protecting, providing for your bride in a way that is otherworldly? Or do they look at your marriage and the way that you husband, eh, and they shrug. Nothing to see here. If you're a man who is married, you are a husband, your faith in Jesus Christ calls you to image and even now to begin to imitate what our experience, what our reality will be in the future. That is a daunting task. On my best day, that is not me. But that's what I've been called to do. Women, if you're here and you're married, you're a wife, does your relationship with your husband look like the description of Christ and his bride in Revelation 19 and 20 and 21 and 22? Joy, delight, 
willingness to serve alongside of, to walk together with, not ahead, not behind, loving leadership, loving his protection, loving his provision, because that's what you're going to be doing for all eternity with Christ. Or when the world around you looks at your marriage and the way that you relate to your husband, do they shrug? Eh, nothing to see here. Nothing special. If I can leave you with this challenge, ultimately at the end of the day, God is working through our marriages for two reasons. We could say more, but we'll say two. One, because in his wisdom, he has partnered you together with your mate so that you can serve his purposes in his creation and advance his kingdom. It is not ultimately about you. But it is good and kind of God to partner you with someone that he wants you to enjoy and to be satisfied and content with. That is possible. But don't make that joy and satisfaction the ultimate end. Then your marriage becomes an idol and your marriage will always disappoint you. Two, God gives us marriage. He puts man and woman together to image or project our future hope. That in these little kingdom outposts that we call the home, that people would look at the people of God and say, there's something different about the way that they do marriage. And there's something different about the way that they do parenting. It's like they have a whole different philosophy or they have a whole different purpose or end game in mind. And we want to say, yes. We are trying to live out by experience. We are trying to get even just some pale taste of what God has in store for us through the marriage of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, with his bride, the church. And we want our present marriages to look, feel, sound, have some sense of clear direction to that goal and to that end. Bow with me in prayer. Father, do for us what we could not do for ourselves in our marriages. Give us humility. Give us a desire to confess sin quickly and also to forgive quickly. Help us to turn our eyes from our husbands, from our wives, and to place them on Christ and how our marriages are really just models or shadows of a greater joy, of a greater marriage to come. Father, we ask that you would use our marriages and our families in such a way that it gives us a platform to speak to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the hope for a better future, for a new creation where righteousness rules and reigns. Transform our marriages, we ask, and let us see that transformation come in such a way that we are able to respond with great joy and delight so that we can give you the thanks for it. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.